New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. some successful programs being carried out in the U.S. to reintroduce wild wolves into their natural habitat. This wolf recovery activity is a long game, and there remains much opposition to this movement, not the least of which is our mythological view of wolves as standing for all that is vicious, dangerous, and savage. For example, the folktales Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf, or The Three Little Pigs Pursued by the Wolf, or Russia's Peter and the Wolf. Wolves are well woven into the fabric of our human story. There are those who suggest that now, more than ever, we need wilderness and wolves. Today we'll be looking at this enterprise, its challenges and its successes, with our guest, Brenda Peterson. Brenda Peterson is a novelist, nature writer, and writing teacher. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Orion Magazine, and oh, the Oprah Magazine. She's a regular commentator for Seattle NPR and the Huffington Post, and is the author of 18 books, including Build Me an Ark, A Life with Animals, and the novel Duck and Cover, a New York Times notable book of the year. She also is the author of the spiritual memoir, I Want to Be Left Behind, Finding Rapture Here on Earth, and Wolf Nation, The Life, Death, and Return of Wild American Wolves. Join us for the next hour as we look into why human coexistence with wild wolves is important to our environment and our human species with our guest, Brenda Peterson. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Brenda, welcome. Delighted to be here, Justine. It's such a delight to have you. Oh, boy, let's, let's talk about wolves. <laughs> but before we really get into that, I would love for you to share with our listeners a little of your background of your childhood that really informed your love of the wild and, and nature. Can you say something about how you grew up? Yes, I grew up in the High Sierra here in California, and my father was in the Forest Service, and we were up there with many more animals than humans. Mm. 
So I had a very different point of view about reality. My reality was humans are kind of incidental, and animals are really in abundance, and the trees are the most important at all. So the ecosystem dominated my early years, which was kind of different if I had grown up in a suburb or a city. And, of course, there were no wolves where I grew up on the Plumas National Forest in the High Sierra. The wolves had been eradicated a hundred years earlier by hunters, by federal programs. So often I would hear a coyote and I would think, is that a wolf? And I learned from people around me in the Forest Service that there was really a big good wolf. That in fact, even though they had been eradicated and they had this mythological baggage that they carry, they were in fact part of a system that was intact and healthy before we wiped them out. So growing up in this very small little Forest Service cabin and listening for the sound of the wild wolf, I kind of learned, because I didn't have pets, I had wild animals as part of my own ecosystem. So what I learned was how to love what was wild and untamed. I learned how to love what was not a pet or devoted for me. I learned how to love what was invisible and wary of me. So before we had any pets, we had raccoons, we had deer, we had elk, we had coyote, and I longed to grow up to be a wolf. Oh, very, very interesting that you had that connection early on with wolves, even though they weren't present. Their their absence was all was almost present. They were haunting our imaginations, and they hadn't been gone that long. A hundred years in an ecosystem, there can be a lot of damage, but there can be a lot that just kind of stays similar. Remember, I grew up with wildlife managers, right? People who were hunters, people who... I didn't have a hamburger till I was five. I grew up eating venison and, and squirrel and elk and moose and all of those things my father hunted for us. So we had a very good, I mean, very healthy upbringing. Uh, I'm bred on wild creatures. But it wasn't, your father didn't just hunt just to kill, no. but he, you, he, he, he provided food. It was his sustainable tradition. He never hunted more than um, was necessary to feed his family. He was not a trophy hunter. He was someone who grew up uh, in, in the South, and his father was a hunter, and his grandfather was a hunter. So it was just a natural, sustainable thing to do. And I grew up in a crib that had deer heads mounted above my crib. So imagine being a little child, and you're seeing human faces, but you're also seeing these these deer mounted, uh, they weren't trophies. They were just my father's, you know, my father's, this is what I've done. This is the deer. And I would look up at them and I would think, oh, they're my babysitters. Hmm. So I had a predator-prey relationship that I grew up with, almost as if I was a native person who grew up a long time ago because I had that relationship. And it was very respectful. It was very um, honorable. And there are many hunters who still hunt that way, and they are honorable hunters, and they um, believe in the sustainability of the predator, top predator-prey relationship, which includes wolves. Let's say something about why you feel, and in the research that you've done and the people that you've met, 
why you feel that wild wolves, why we need wild wolves. Why is is this why it's this important to our sustainability on the planet? That's a very good question. Wild wolves are keystone species. Scientists use that phrase to describe a species that really is important to the entire ecosystem. They are top predators like humans, like grizzly bears, you know, they and cougars. And cougars. Be, yeah. If you take out a top predator, there's something called trophic cascades. And that is if you take out a top predator like the wolf. Then you have their prey who overpopulate, and deer tend to overgraze. Elk will stand around like lawn ornaments without what they call the ecology of fear. Christina Eisenberg, the wonderful wolf researcher I, I interview in Wolf Nation, talks about having a cabin before she knew much about wolves at all up in Montana. And she was out with her kids one day, and all of a sudden, she saw all these deer streaking across their flower bed. And they were running for the first time she'd ever seen them run. Usually they just stand around completely docile and munch down to the ground. Willows, you know, aspen, gardens, they just munch and munch. Suddenly, bursting out of the forest came two wolves. That's why the deer were running. They may have never seen a wolf for a hundred years. And she and Christina and her family watched these wolves chase the deer, and they were just thrilled. And because she had taught her children bird watching and to recognize animal scat, so there were young budding scientists in her family, she went to the local ranger and she said, look, I've taken this fur from off the trees from these wolves going by. And he said, oh, no, there's no wolves here. That was just coyotes or wild dogs. Well, they tested it. It was wolves. And about a year later, she saw those wolves with pups. And they were not afraid of her, and she was not afraid of them. And she began to notice that her meadow was starting to change. Wildflowers were returning. Songbirds were returning. Trees and shrubs were growing higher. The stream, because the beavers were back, and they were using these beautiful new trees and all the underbrush to build their, their dams. Beavers are ecosystem engineers, right? And they build their dams, which make cool eddies where fish gather. So there were more fish. There was uh, better streams. There was less erosion. That's trophic cascades at work. And when Christina saw that in her own meadow, she decided to study wolves. So in, in other words, you're talking about wolves help to stabilize. If they're not there, then the elk or the deer start overgrazing, and then the it, it, it causes a whole It causes erosion. 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 That's why it's cascade, because right. it's a cascade of effects. So the erosion means the rivers silt up, and they don't run as clear. And, and then we don't have those pools for the, the, the cool, trout. The trout, they yes. need a little cool eddy eddy to kind of live in. If, if it gets too shallow, yes. then they can't survive. And Christina says, if you take away the wolves, then the ecosystem is degraded and it's heading backwards, meaning that it will take a long time to restore. Now, there are other things that affect fire, bison, how many elk, how tall the willows are. So, you know, it's a very complex, what Michael Pyle calls a tangled bank, meaning 
It's never a simple story. But if you remember nothing else, remember that the wolves are the best habitat managers in the ecosystem. You know, it just reminds me, Brenda, that we think we're, we have the hubris to think we can manage it better than nature herself, uh, itself. That yes. we, we think, oh, well, we'll do this. And we start tampering with it. And then we, we get into all sorts of trouble. Especially, Justine, when you tamper with it with a certain agenda. And there you have the government which wanted to extinguish and eradicate and create a war against the wolves because they wanted to open up all those forests and cut down the trees and have grazing rights for cattle, right? So they didn't want to have wolves because they might prey on livestock. Then you have hunters who wanted a lot of elk and a lot of deer so that they could have successful hunts. Hunters and ranchers are not normal allies, it's a, late, it's a recent political development because they are anti-wolf often. But hunters actually don't love having lots of cattle around. They want forests. They want wild game. They want more of a wild... Um, they even might want to hunt wolves, you know, because they are out there outdoors. They're not domesticating animals. So when you have humans manage, as they have for the last hundred years... For a hunter's or a rancher's agenda, it's not an ecosystem health that's really prioritized. I'm here with Brenda Peterson. She's the author of Wolf Nation, The Life, Death, and Return of Wild American Wolves. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, brendapetersonbooks.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Brenda Peterson. She's the author of many books, including Wolf Nation, The Life, Death, and Return of Wild American Wolves. And uh, Brenda, let's talk a little bit about the complex society that wolves represent. I mean, we have words such as, um, he's a, a lone wolf, predator or something like that we, we, when we're describing some bad human actor. And that actually is a fallacy, isn't yes, it? Can very you much. just tell us You know, about when it? the terrorist attack happened in Orlando, which was such a tragedy, a human tragedy, 
I kept hearing over and over again, a lone wolf shooter. And because I was working and have worked for the past 20 years on wolves, I know that that's an absolute untruth. Wolves alone are very vulnerable. At any one time in a population of wolves, only 20% are alone. And those don't want to be alone for long. They are either dispersing because of family politics, they're omegas instead of alphas, and they're like, hey, I want out of this, I want to find a mate. Um, or they just are wanderers. Or they just you know, have a, a desire to create their own family. And so there's many reasons why a wolf might be alone for a short period of time. But they're usually looking for love in all the right places, mm -hmm. we hope, like OR7, who dispersed from an Oregon wolf family and ended up being the first wolf in California in a hundred years to find a mate and to be back in the birthplace where I, in my, in my own birthplace, a wolf came back, which was a great, I never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. But wolves are monogamous. They can travel 35 miles a day. Um, they can swim 50 miles. They are all about, in fact, there's this wonderful article by a scientist, um, Levy, called Wolf Family Values, which we usually reserve for humans. But in fact, as Amaruk Weiss, who's a wolf lawyer, says, it's all about the pups. Because, you know, if you only have one breeding pair in a family of 10, what do the others do? They're juveniles. They're babysitters. They are trainers. They go out and hunt if the mother's given birth and is in the den. So that family is all about the next generations. It's very much like an extended human family where you might have, you know, one baby attended by a great-grandmother, a grandmother, an auntie, and a sister. And so if you watch wolves, which we've had the great pleasure of doing in Yellowstone, where they've returned after 70-some uh, years, and people have been watching these wolves for 20 years and watching their family dramas and who's in and who's out and, you know, all the amazing wolf politics, which mirror our politics, when you begin to watch wolves over time and you see those family values at work— you see how much they mirror us. They are the most social of all non-vertebrate, of all invertebrates. They are the most social. And in that way, they are very akin to us. So when we look at wolves, we think, oh, they have a culture. They have a hunting culture. They train their young. They're cooperative hunters as humans are. And another interesting fact that you point out in your research is that they are headed up not by an alpha male by itself, but by an alpha pair. Yes. So say something about that. That's very interesting. There's a great story in the book that Rick McIntyre, the wolf man in Yellowstone, tells um, in which there was a, a, a zoo wolf uh, family. And uh, somebody was asking, well, who's the alpha male? Because, of course, we always think alpha male because we live in a patriarchy. So we project that onto every animal we study. And he said, oh, that's the alpha male. But then a teenager who had been doing her high school project at the Portland Zoo said, I, you know, I think that female is pretty powerful, too. I've been watching her, and it seems to me that she kind of calls the shots as well. 
And it turned out when they actually began to adjust their angle of vision to look at the wolves without our prejudice or our patriarchal kind of projections, there was a pair. And in many of the wolf families, like 06 in Yellowstone, she's the matriarch. And she's married, as you would say in human terms, she's made it because they do mate for life, with two brothers who were kind of young and clueless. And she trained them how to hunt. She really completely ran that family. And so as we've begun to become more egalitarian with our politics and our gender identities, we began to look at wolves in a different way. And one of the ways that they know, I know that you point out in your stories in the book, one of the ways they know that is that like the the male allows the female to to trot on ahead of him. Yes. Rather, in, and if he were truly just the head king, the head guy, that would never happen. Yes. There's a wonderful story in the beginning of the book, in the first chapter, and it's about Lobo, King Lobo the wolf, who was mated with Blanca. And they tried to catch this beautiful, beautiful wolf for many years because at that point they were completely eradicating every wolf in order to have ranches and cattle. And they finally figured out a way to get to Lobo. And that was because he allowed Blanca to walk point, basically to walk ahead of the family, to kind of scope out what was ahead. And he would stay back with the juveniles and the pups to guard them. And that's how they moved through the forest. They figured out that if they tracked her and got to her first, that Lobo would never leave her side. And that's how they got him. It's such a sad, sad story. It's heartbreaking. But, but it changed Seton's life, and he headed up the Boy Scouts, and yes. then he wrote about it. So it, in some ways, it was terrible for the wolves, but people don't know that about this man. No, and there is this history of people who were wolf hunters, everyone from Aldo Leopold to Seton to Carter Nehemiah, who's also written memoirs about wolves in this current time, who were wolf trappers and hunters who completely had an amazing experience with a wild wolf that made them wolf champions. And maybe we could talk a little about Adel Leopold. I'd love to. I'd love to, Brenda. Uh, one of the things that you pointed out about him that just really grabbed me was when he, he was also a tracker and then became an advocate. But while when he was a tracker and he had his conversion, he asked a very profound question. He moved his viewpoint over from human viewpoint to mountain viewpoint. I'd love for you to describe that. He had an epiphany that he published after, that was published after his death that has really affected all of us. You can either say that you're from the Leopold kind of uh, paradigm of conservation or you're from the Gifford Pinchot. They were both, Gifford Pinchot was Leopold's mentor and they had a parting of ways because, and they're both in the Forest Service, because Pinchot was very progressive but utilitarian and practical. So everything had to serve humans. Leopold said, what if these creatures exist and have an intrinsic worth all their own that has nothing to do with how they serve us or how we might domesticate them for our use, right? So he loved also what was wild. 
And he had this idea that what if you looked at an ecosystem not from a human perspective, but from the perspective of the mountain? Thinking Like a Mountain was his great essay that really has affected so many of us. And he tells the story of being out with his buddies when he was a tracker, and they see this wolf mother and her pups. And in those days, he writes, I was young and full of trigger itch. If we saw a wolf, we killed the wolf. And so they killed this mother wolf, and her pups, one was shot in the leg and ran off into the bushes. And I write uh, in this chapter about what he saw And he writes that he saw the green fire dying in that mother wolf's eyes. And it forever changed him. And I wonder what she saw when she looked at this man who had just killed her and her family. Did she see, did she somehow know that this death, that her death might change humans forever? Did she somehow understand that she didn't die for nothing? Um, That's the novelist in me, you know, not the scientist in me, kind of anthropomorphizing just a little bit. But now even scientists are discovering that facts don't change the heart. Empathy is what changes the heart. So what that wolf trapper had, like Seton, like Nehemiah, he suddenly had empathy for this fellow creature who was dying at his hands. And any of us who have been with someone who is dying or who has died, while we are there, it's a holy, sacred moment. Mm -hmm. And it can be incredibly sad. It can be incredibly uh, heart and soul opening. But that's what we need with these other species. And I, I think also adding to that profound realization is um, his asking the question, the, the mountain, what, what's really important to the mountain, I guess, would be the elk or the deer. And the deer, uh, so where, where did Actually, the, what's the, important to the mountain is, is the wolf being in charge of the habitat, because he actually writes in that essay that the mountain is afraid of the deer, overmuch deer. The mountain is afraid of the overmuch of deer and elk, meaning the overgrazing of the mountain, the shrubs, the trees, everything we talked about earlier. The mountain lives in fear of an ecosystem that's out of whack, without the top predator, keeping everything in charge. You know, we are not in charge of nature, and we are discovering that more and more with climate change, with everything that's happening. And our scientists are becoming very aware of this. And I have spent many years with scientists, and the best of them are completely devoted to the wild and to the preservation of these healthy ecosystems with top predators. So uh, we might really look up the work of Aldo Leopold and the idea of wildness is is beneficial for earth and for for a human species. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Brenda Peterson. She's a nature writer and uh, just a writer of many, many books, including Sightings and Build Me an Ark and other uh, wonderful, her memoir on uh, spiritual memoir on I Want to Be Left Behind, uh, which we've done an interview with in previous times. 
and her new work is Wolf Nation, The Life, Death, and Return of Wild American Wolves. And also I want to mention another book that she has um, written, done the writing around these beautiful, beautiful photographs uh, by Anne-Marie Musselman, and it's called Wolf Haven, Sanctuary and the Future of Wolves in North America. Beautiful, beautiful book. So those two books, and if you want to know more about the work of Brenda, you can go to her website, brendapetersonbooks.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Brenda Peterson. She's the author of Wolf Nation, The Life, Death, and Return of Wild American Wolves. And Brenda, I would love it. There is, you devote some chapter in your book of a particular wolf, and you've mentioned it, OR7, but some some of us know this wolf uh, by another name, Journey. Yes. So tell us about it, and you've mentioned that Journey did come back to California. California. So tell us the story of Journey. So OR7 was the seventh wolf to be radio collared in Oregon. That's why OR Oregon 7, OR7. So that's the stud name, the scientific name. And he dispersed from a very large and successful um, wolf family led by OR4, who they called the Pavarotti of wolves because he had this, you can actually hear on some, you know, if you go to Oregon Wild or Cascadia Wild, you can actually hear OR4's wolf howl. And it is deep because, you know, every wolf has a distinct howl. So this was a very strong OR4 father, a patriarch. You know, remember, only a breeding pair can breed in a family. So if you're looking for love, you got to leave Dodge, right? So OR7 dispersed. We don't know why, and we had no idea how long he would he would wander. So he took off in—he uh, was born in 2009. In 2011, he dispersed. He ended up in California by that winter. So that was a long trek in itself. Because he was radio-collared, we could actually follow him. And he began to become a folk hero— these kids would have their science projects tracking OR7 by telemetry, you know, and, their, and the, the, the scientist on the website, you could track it. So they had these big maps in their elementary schools, and they would say, oh, now he's here, now he's here. Will he find a mate? So it became this incredible love story, um, a wolf romance um, there were a lot of camera people running around the woods like wolf paparazzi mm -hmm. trying to find pictures. But we really hoped, because I was following this too, um, that he wouldn't be captured or, he, or killed, God forbid, or in any way seen because he needed to be invisible so he could survive. So think of what 
it was for him being alone. Like I said, lone wolves are very rare. So he had to hunt small prey. He couldn't bring down a 700-pound elk because he didn't have a family to hunt with. He had to pretty starve. He was going through the winter where there probably wasn't a lot available. Um, he would have to forage. There would be, if he tried to approach another family looking for a female, there would be a fight because they are very territorial. He would have to basically steal her away, Romeo and Juliet-esque, mm -hmm. away from that family. So he was having a hard time. And by the time he ended up in the spring of 2012, OR7 had trekked 1,000 miles. The LA Times, the, the San Francisco Chronicle, people were just amazed. He ended up, the first place he appeared in California was in the Plumas National Forest where I had been born all those years ago. And so, of course, I was tracking OR7. School children had a contest to name him. And like you said, they named him Journey. There's even a really wonderful children's book out now about Journey. Then you can track the timeline. You can see all the science notes at the back. The good news was that, that in California, he was protected he legally. Was legally that protected. doesn't protect any any animal like that from poachers. No. But but it, legally he he was protected. Legally he was protected. That doesn't necessarily protect wolves if people want to hunt them and they illegally poach them. And there were people who were bragging on social media that they were going to be the one to kill Journey. That would be a big coup for them. It just takes my breath away that someone would think that that is okay or that they'd be proud of something like that. It just takes it's my heartbreaking. Breath. It is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because think of what he was going through. He was, he was what Joseph Campbell talks about, the hero's journey, where the hero leaves the family. He goes into the underworld. He tries to find something of worth to bring back to the tribe. And uh, Joseph Campbell has this great quote that you have to follow your own path or else you're following someone else's path. So OR7 did not want to stay in a path where everything would be pretty much a hierarchy and dictated to him. He was brave. He was a westward ho wolf. When he got to Oregon and California, they had a big discovery. In May of 2014, a remote camera, those cameras up there, you know, that they put like slides in or like um, USB port in, they took it out and the wildlife people went, oh my God, here's OR7 and he's not alone. There was this beautiful, slender, ebony wild wolf who was squatting, so we knew that she was female. And then there's this beautiful, you know, viral photo of this little wolf that's dashing past the remote camera. So he's kind of blurred. He's tiny. His little ears are up. And you're thinking, oh, my God, he's out in the open. But right behind him is OR7, looking, guarding. And now he's had two litters of pups. And I pray, you know, I keep him in my meditations because that family is still alive and they are intact and they are up there wandering around Oregon and down in, you know, to California into the, you know, I won't say where they are. No one knows where they are now because the radio caller, the battery died. So no wolf paparazzi. And that's as it should be. You mentioned... Uh the the wolf song and oh, say something about their how why do wolves howl say something about their songs 
My favorite chapter in the book is called Wolf Music. And you and I are singers, Justine. Yes, We've yes. sung to gray whales, yes, you know, we in have. Baja. We still sing every Tuesday nights. We go to each, you know, of our own corrals. Exactly. So I came to Wolves as an artist, as a novelist, as a singer. So I wanted a chapter only on their music, which is so complex and sophisticated that, you know, the science will tell us this. Wolves howl to create a boundary of their territory. They howl to locate each other. They howl because it feels good. It's called social glue, like singing around a campfire. They howl because there's a kill, come for dinner, you know. They howl for many, many reasons that we may not know. But what if they just howl to make music? What if they, like we, love to hear each other's voices and harmonize. So I went out and interviewed a world-famous French classical pianist, Hélène Grimaud, who, you know, if you see her, she is such a, a, an amazing uh, musician. And she also co-founded New York State's Wolf Conservation Center, which is a wonderful sanctuary. It's kind of the New York Wolf Center, Wolf Conservation Center in New York, and Wolf Haven here in Washington are the two, are the, they're really wonderful sanctuaries. And there's ambassador wolves at New York Wolf, and there's species survival programs, which we'll talk about in a second, where they return captive born wolves to the wild. But Hélène Grimaud, I said to her, why do you think wolves howl? And she went into this incredible riff about the fact that if you harmonize, if you call and respond with a wild wolf, they will adjust their thirds and fifths in perfect harmony with ours. They actually are in harmony with our voices. So if you go on uh, PBS's Nova, and there's links to the lonesome wolf howl and the chorus of wolves and a pup howl, you can actually hear how they adjust. They don't just say if I'm going, if I'm singing, you know, something like, the wolf would go, you know, they would modulate their voices so that we would be in harmony. It's so amazing. And that's music. It's so That's amazing. sophisticated, complex music. That's not just howling for food or territory. That's something else. And once you ascribe to other species grief, we know that wolves grieve like elephants, like dolphins. Once you ascribe to them empathy, they take care of each other. They babysit each other. They feed each other if they're injured. Once you start ascribing all these emotions and things that are supposedly just human traits to other animals, you must then treat them as equals. You know, I'm just thinking as you say that, Brenda, that uh, the Supreme Court has ruled that dogs, domesticated dogs, are sentient beings. And in other words, that people can, can it's, it's illegal for people to be abusive That's right. to, to dogs and cats and things like that. But what you're describing about wolves and dolphins and elephants and whales and everything, it's the same there, the same yes. principle. Although we as humans, we don't ascribe because they're wild and not domesticated. We make that, uh, that difference in some way. I know you've interviewed the Dalai Lama. Yes. And he talks a lot about empathy. And compassion, of course. And he talks about people who have compassion for me, mine, and ours. The picket fence. Mm -hmm. Everyone inside this white picket fence 
usually humans, or my dog or my cat, is worthy of my compassion. But what about the rest of us who have compassion for the extended kinship, which includes people we've never seen, animals we may never see, um, you know, tide pool creatures? Mm -hmm. What about that extended kinship system, which really is the way Native people saw the world, Indigenous people, and see it still? It's the way many of us now see the world because we have more science and education and experience. If you watch wolf families in Yellowstone, and you watch them year after year after year, and you have someone like Rick McIntyre who has every story for the last 20 years and who put a wolf pelt that he uses to teach on my back when I was covering the reintroduction of wolves for the Seattle Times in 1995. And I went back you know, last summer to meet him again. He put that wolf pelt on my back, and I could feel what I know stays with skin, which is the spirit and the force of that wolf. And he said to me, the wolf needs storytellers. And I believe it's through this work we're doing, it's through telling science is wonderful, but science without empathy doesn't change, as I've said. So the stories I'm telling you about these wolves, there are so many in the book. There's OR7. There's a Cinderella wolf who really is a story of Cinderella in her family. There's a story of Hopa and Brother, the wolves that I've witnessed being returned to the wild. There's a babysitter wolf who, you know, learned how to take care of these wolves who were kind of the pups who were not coming away from a place that was dangerous. And she finally invoked play. She got them into a tug-of-war with a stick, and then she could pull them to safety. So she used a tool. Yes. She, she picked up this picked elk up a tool. shank, and she, she co- coerced or, or, or tempted the, these pups through play. Yes. It was amazing. Yes. And Gordon Haber and Amaruk Weiss have said, wolves have been seen to engage in play every 30 minutes. They play more than we do. But it's a biological necessity. It's a survival skill. Yes. So isn't that telling us something about ourselves, Brenda? We need to play. I mean, in these times that are so challenging. Yes. I want to to remind our listeners that I'm here with Brenda Peterson. She is the author of Wolf Nation, The Life, Death, and Return of Wild American Wolves. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, brendapetersonbooks.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Brenda Peterson. She's a novelist, nature writer, and writing teacher, and her most recent work is Wolf Nation, The Life, Death, and Return of Wild American Wolves. And Brenda, you mentioned something about species survival Survival program, program. and I'd love for you to say something about that. So there are 52 wolf sanctuaries that are accredited, you know, in this country. And in that, it's not just these sanctuary wolves who are maybe wolves that people tried to raise and it didn't work out, or wolves who have been abused that are brought to sanctuary. It's a federal program, SSP, Species Survival Program, that actually takes captive-born wolves, Mexican gray wolves especially, who are highly endangered. And they were the first old world wolf to cross the Bering Land Bridge. So the fact that they are almost totally not around. Like coming from Siberia. Yeah. Yes. And they were the first to colonize this country. So the fact that the Mexican gray wolves, the smallest of this species of wolf, are so deeply endangered in the Southwest, in Mexico, they completely went extinct in this country. Now they're coming back and they're helped with this species survival program where these sanctuaries, they breed them under federal management and then they are selected if they have the right kind of genetic diversity or if they seem to be afraid of people, which they need to be. They yes. have to be afraid of people. and because, That would keep them away from people. Yes. They're born blind, they're born blue-eyed and deaf. And then 12 or 14, you know, days, they start getting their hearing. They're in the den. They are kept completely away from humans in these sanctuaries for the first four to six weeks. So it's just all about family. It's just all about growing up with their siblings and their parents. Then there's a first kind of medical exam. And in the, in the book Wolf Haven, which is the photo essay book, which is kind of companion book. It just came out earlier than Wolf Nation. I went down with the photographer and spent the summer watching these wolves and got to watch them through remote cameras. So I got to really witness a lot of this you know, work while the photographer was actually uh, taking photos. And there's a chapter called Lobo, Born to be Wild. And it's following these pups who I've got to see when they were little tiny creatures. And then they, this family, Hopa F122 and brother uh, M1067, their stud names, they were chosen with their three male pups to return to the wild, which is a long journey. It's a 28-hour journey by plane and van. So can you imagine if you are in a Alaska flight or whatever, and you're flying down to Phoenix, and you knew that there were six pups in baggage? They can't be tranquilized because you can't, there'd be choking, they are unmonitored. So they got into a van, they were driven all night to the ladder ranch, Ted Turner Ladder Ranch in New Mexico, where they were in a kind of pre-release facility. They had a lot more uh, room to wander. They were chasing ravens, they were killing, you know, they were becoming wolves again, wild wolves. This December, I got the call to come down and to talk with them again because these wolves were driven down to Mexico, which is has a wonderful species release program of wild release. And at the middle of the night, they sent me these photos. They're on my website. You can look at my website and see these photos. Uh, Hopa was pregnant during the journey. She gave birth to six more pups. It's the largest Mexican wild wolf release in the history of our country or Mexico. So it's a totally big success story. 
And they is, is Mexico uh, amenable to this? Absolutely, they're, they're doing it? wonderful work. They're doing really good work. And so there's this picture on my website of all those crates lined up. And of course, they opened and they were going, uno, dos, tres. They opened up, you know, the kennel and the only wolf who ran out was Hopa, the matriarch. Remember the matriarch? Yes. Everyone else, including her mate, brother, and all the other pups, were, we're not getting out of here. But then she came back and they followed her out. And there's a video on my website and on the website for Wolf Haven of these pups in the snow, free, wild, at home, where they should be. One of the things that, that you described that I loved reading about is that they were in this sanctuary up in where Washington in State, Washington Wolf State, Haven. Oh, yes. Wolf Haven. All right, they're there, so they're going to capture them. They're free, free roaming yes. in, within this sanctuary. Yes, and so the the wildlife people they walk in there, but very, very calmly. You yes. describe this very carefully. They come in, their whole demeanor. They're in there with wild wolves. Yes. And like we have such a fear of that. Like, oh my gosh, they're going to be attacked or they're going to be. But you point out that the wolves are more afraid of humans and they're so slow in that what they call catch-up because they're going to catch these wolves. Yes. And they do it with such... Well, it's like it. a ballet. It's like a choreography. I talk about it at great detail in both Wolf Nation and Wolf Haven. There's something that was very humanely designed by a veterinarian called a Y pole. It's a pole that has a Y on the end. It's an aluminum pole, very lightweight. It's padded. And all they do is they very gently put that Y pole on the shoulder of the haunches a little bit of pressure, and the wolf knows immediately because it's had two different exams, you know, medical exams, to hunker down. Then they put a blue mask. You know, if you hit a if you hit a wild animal like a raccoon or a fox on the road, the first thing you do is put a blanket over their eyes and over their body because if they have this little den to hide in, they calm down. So the blue mask goes over the face. It took them an hour to catch up, you know, six wolves which is amazing. And Wendy Spencer, who's the wonderful animal care director, is just my idea of compassion, you know. And they, they just very carefully put them in the kennels where they know to go that they're safe in their den, right? And um, it's, it's all done with such humanity and such compassion and such care. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. One of the things that you point out in, in your book is it's all about acquaintance. Yes. It's all about acquaintance. And you, you quote Jacques Cousteau as saying, uh, people protect what they love. Yes. And, and we, if, if we're separated from that, uh, psychologically, we, we don't, then we're not acquainted with it. Okay. Do you it's, have anything to say about that? It's a form of intimacy. As I said before with the Dalai Lama, if you're only intimate with yours and, and your own little white picket fence, if you don't have intimacy with the wild, as I did as, as a child, if you don't get out into the woods, if you don't get out into the oceans, if you don't have a sense that there is this natural, beautiful, wondrous world out there that you can be intimate with, 
then you are losing what it is to be human. I mean, acquaintance means to acquaint yourself with others. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the other who doesn't mirror us, who, who we don't domesticate, who doesn't serve us, to love that I think is a much higher form of love because you're not getting anything back. back exactly. You know? I know you describe in your book, um, there is, a, I think, a group of business people that go out. Maybe it's at Wolf Haven. I don't it's know. It's at where. the New York Wolf Center, Wolf Conservation Center. Uh, do you remember that story? Tell yes. Uh, that was uh, Maggie Howell, who's a director there at the WWC um, in New York State. She talks about bringing these business people and they started a group howl because if we howl, the wolves call and respond. Again, intimacy. What a thrill. How many of you listening out there have heard a wolf in the wild howling? That's your birthright. That's our birthright, to be able to hear other animals singing and to listen and to sing with them. You know, so these business people are sitting there and they're kind of, you know, they're very about business bottom line, et cetera, and suddenly they start howling with these wolves and their faces change, their body language changes, they get really kind of soft and they start listening and fitting their voices in with these wild animals. That's, to me, resonance. And their whole demeanor changed yes. from, from these very sophisticated people that are... are New Yorkers. They, New Yorkers, and they just melt. Yes. They're just, they're, and that's what being in this coordination with wildness can do for us. Yes, that's intimacy with something that is not our mirror. You know, when you watch everyone walking around with their cell phones, it's basically our mirror. Look at all the selfies. I think it's time to put that in perspective. I love technology, but it's time to balance it with really, really watching what's around us and seeing trees and, you know, seeing animals that are always watching us because they are very wary. We are always being watched by wild animals. We may not see them, but they are very aware of us. And if we can get one thing through, wolves are very afraid of humans. They do not attack us. I just watched a documentary about an Italian wildlife photographer up there in British Columbia taking photos of sea wolves who are fishing salmon in a kind of going back, you know, they're wondering if this is an evolutionary thing that wolves are going to kind of become marine mammals. And orcas, you know, the whales, when they walk on the land, they walk as wolves, according to the native traditions. Oh, and we could go on and on about the whole native tradition and, and what they have to say about wolves and what they have learned and passed on to us. Uh, Brenda, I want to thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. Thank you, Justine. I've been speaking with Brenda Peterson. She is a novelist, a nature writer, and writing teacher, and her most recent work is Wolf Nation, The Life, Death, and Return of Wild American Wolves. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, brendapetersonbooks.com. You can also look for the book Wolf Haven, which is a photographic uh, book that has Brenda's writing in it as well. And you can also get to her website by going to our website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3611. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.